This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Defense Department experienced more than 12,000 cyber incidents between 2015 and 2021. And now a new Government Accountability Office report reveals DOD and its contractors are struggling to share accurate and timely information about those attacks. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with GAO's Joel Kirschbaum and Jennifer Franks. The findings and recommendations we have all are focused on some central ideas. And that those ideas are that in order to really do effective cybersecurity, in order to really, for DOD, get cyber management you know, under control, it's a matter of having the right information to the right people at the right time. I mean, that, that, that may be an overgeneralization, but that's kind of how I would characterize it. And you can look at our individual findings and see elements of that. Things, databases that were required uh, weren't always complete or they weren't always timely. That doesn't mean that in, in most, any, all situations, the wrong information was there that could have prevented something else. It means that in order for them for them to be really effective and efficient, they need to have consistent information that they know they need, and it needs to get to the right people, uh, whether it's the uh, DOD leaders or whether it's people sitting to the right and left of other operators so they know what how best to do. I echo everything Joe said, but for me, focusing more on the cyber incidents and the threats in general, DOD fights the battle just like any other federal agency, and they really do continue to be susceptible to the the sophisticated evolving attacks that have increasingly become more sophisticated from around the globe. And we do highlight positives, of course, where they really have taken a number of actions to take strides and better protecting their data and their systems. But then we note and make some recommendations because there really could be some improvements in how they perform some of the management of their systems and processes for reporting and sharing critical information regarding the cyber incidents that then impact DOD. Yeah, I found it really interesting that more than 12,000 reported incidents over the course of about six years between 2015 and 2021, but the bulk of those incidents occurred in 2015 and 2016, and then really significantly dropped off DOD credited to increased defenses. So it seems like they're getting better at, in general, defending their networks and data. But the crux of the issue here is is sharing information about the incidents and attacks that do get through so that perhaps others can who need to know about those incidents can respond as well. Yeah, absolutely. You noted it correctly. As the downward trend indicates, yeah, there have been fewer incidents, but they have increased their perimeter detection mechanisms. They have increased their workforce and the the talent that it takes to be skilled in order to provide those, you know, that forensic analyses for the incidents and provide those continuous monitoring services. But where they're lacking really is in that information sharing. And again, not just DOD, other federal agencies as well. But what makes DOD unique is that they really do operate, you know, protecting our national security within this very unique environment. And a lot of these cyber incidents hold very serious criticalities. And without properly communicating with agency leadership across the different operating divisions, one cannot learn the appropriate lessons or the actions that one should take 
in actually responding to an incident or be, being able to provide their own perimeter defenses for some vulnerability that could then be impacting their networks. And, you know, the report looked at two kind of different aspects of this in that there are the internal cybersecurity service providers who are defense department organizations, and then there, there are the external defense industrial base companies who hold defense information that DOD might would consider uh, sensitive. What were some of the differences and maybe some of the similarities in what each of those distinct uh, sets of organizations struggled with when it comes to reporting and managing cyber incidents? I think you see a lot of the same similarities, a lot of the same uh, issues that, that came up. For example, uh, DOD obviously clearly had systems in place that were intended for components to report cyber incidents and how they were supposed to report them and what those reports were supposed to constitute. And what you find is very similar across the board is is in, in large degree, they did those, they followed those procedures, but you'll see instances where the reports were not timely or they didn't include all the information that was supposed to be in that system or the system they used, they chose to use didn't fully capture the spirit of all of those many things you would really want to or need to know about an incident. So there's there's maybe problems with the potential construct of the system the way they had it or the way people were using the system. This was definitely true on the on the DoD side from from the reporting the components into the various systems, and also true on the side where the defense industrial base is required to report their incidents, the same kind of things. Now, they maybe not use the same kind of systems, but it's the same concepts. The, the reports were uh, sometimes not as complete or not as timely. And you can you can have a debate, and we certainly heard it when we did this work, about the value of timely versus accurate. Is it better to have information that's accurate and that's complete versus as quick as possible is timely. And the unfortunate answer is it depends, right? It, it depends on the incident. So, and that's the answer we heard, of course. So, which leads to one of one of the reasons you'll see a lot of our recommendations, the way they're written is not prescriptive in terms of one or two things. It's it's come up with the way that that you, DOD, need the answers to those questions and make and make your improvements based on that versus one or two things we know they need to do. Yeah, I, I was struck by the stat that, you know, 91% of the cybersecurity service providers did not include information on the discovery date of the incident, and 68% did not have information on the delivery vector. Does that come down to maybe them lacking information? Do you, do you have any idea why these reports maybe were so incomplete? Well, many of them, it's it the go into the details of, of individual issues. I mean, each incident is its own incident. So what we don't know is what was operative for that incident. So in other words, they may not have known some of that information. So they may not have been able to report it. That's one possibility. And and you know, so we we saw kind of a a range of these things. Some of them just in, import it or didn't import it at the right time or didn't update it when they were supposed to. Because like the one of their main systems is supposed to be updated. Once you enter basic information in a quote unquote timely manner, you're supposed to update it. And some of them just didn't update it. 
So that's why some of that information was missing. But in some cases, you know, you may not know something. The point really is for them to do kind of what Jennifer was outlining in order to, to really learn the lessons and ready to learn the lessons currently, get them out to the people who need them. They need as much of that information so they can come up with prescriptions and, and, and so they can come up with potential actions and share those in a timely manner with the people who will definitely need to know them in order to, to protect systems. Joel Kirschbaum and Jennifer Franks of the GAO speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. 
Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, And so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in this in this sense. Looking back, what what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today too. Working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about. Is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. 
And we left the meeting and we were walking back to the office and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now. Now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups, you might get this experience. But really, where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. You think your dog deserves the best for the holidays. BarkBox knows they do. And the best is exactly what BarkBox delivers every month. You'll get fun-themed goodies curated for your dog, and you'll be joining a community of pups and their people. We're celebrating sugar season with a double batch of irresistible toys, treats, and chews from our season sweetings-themed box. 
To start spoiling your dog and get your free upgrade, visit BarkBox.com slash podcast. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. <laughs> 